HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. On the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Erica Wides, your host. I'm cheap. We all know that. It's been established. You guys know me by now. If you've been listening for any length of time, you're all very well familiar with my my thrifty ways. You know, for example, here's a good example of me being thrifty. There is no way in hell that I am paying over $100 a month for cable TV. Nope. It's just not going to happen. My very smart half-Jewish husband got us an Apple TV box instead, and that works just fine, and that's what we use. And if there's nothing on, you know, regular network TV that we want to watch or PBS, we turn to our Apple TV and we watch Netflix. And that's how I got to watch all of Weeds and Breaking Bad and Mad Men. Although, actually, for Mad Men, I was so hooked that I bought a season pass on iTunes, and it was a very big deal for me to cough up that 30 bucks, but I did it anyway, because I'm an addict. And, of course, Downton Abbey, which is on PBS and Netflix, so that works. And we've watched our way through a lot of series, many, multiple times, like Arrested Development, and even The League, which, even though it's about football, I love it. Because I love good TV, I know you're not supposed to say you like TV, but we're living in a golden era of great TV, and I love good TV, especially a really compelling, well-written series. You know, it activates like those dopamine receptors in my brain. It's like being on, you know, heroin or methadone or McNuggets, but not as messy. And, you know, as a major media figure myself, I need to keep up with what the competition is doing out there. And right now there's a lot of good TV out there. Now, for my under 30 listeners, 
TV is what we watched before you had YouTube and live streaming and all that. And all you could actually do was sit and watch it. You just sat there and you watched. You only did one thing at a time. You couldn't share it. You couldn't comment it on it. You couldn't like it. You just sat there basking in the comforting glow of your TV, quietly vegetating without comment or opinion, kind of the way God invented TV to be. So a few months ago, we sat there on our couch in just like this helpless, stunned silence after watching the last episode of season four of Breaking Bad. I think it's four, whatever that last one on Netflix is. And this feeling of deep loss began to fill the room because we, re- we realized we wouldn't be able to see any more Breaking Bad until new ones were made and then they aired and then they were put on Netflix. There was an emptiness and we needed to fill it. And so we needed a new series and we needed it fast. So after some browsing around, we found out that on Netflix, there's this like 300 part docuseries called The Story of Film. And it looked interesting enough. And we were facing a long, dark, cold winter, and we're the types who would actually sit and muddle through the whole thing. So we got started on it. Now, back when I was a young girl attending art school many, many years ago, I took film history class, and that class was taught by a massively obese man who one day almost dropped dead in front of us in class because the elevator broke, and the class was on the sixth floor, and he had to walk up six flights of stairs. And he said that if that ever happened again, he was going to physically impale himself on the minimalist sculptures in the building lobby and bleed to death instead. Now, that has nothing to do with anything, has nothing to do with this show, other than that 25 years later, I realized he wouldn't even qualify as obese today. Let me put it this way. If he stood out on a New York City street and the sidewalk collapsed under him, we would all be surprised. I'm just saying. Anyway, the story of film or history of film, whatever it's called, starts out right in the beginning with the absolute earliest moving pictures ever shot. And it moves excruciatingly slowly forward in what seems virtually like real time. The narrator has this droning Scottish monotone, and the whole thing is borderline unwatchable. It's like watching old school PBS on Xanax. But I hate not finishing something I've started, whether it's food or books or a bottle of wine or a movie or becoming the John Stewart of food, you know, whatever. I mean, I ran the New York City Marathon a few years ago, and this is more exhaustively grueling than that. So I'm going to finish that damn series if it takes me until my 50th birthday or I finally stop dressing like a teenage boy, whatever comes first. Now, the first 12 hours or so about how, are, are about how the earliest movie studios, movie-o? earliest movie studios <laughs> were in New York. But they were run by, of course, anti-Semites. And then along came the first wave of early immigrant German Jews with their mad skills and education and talent and general superiority like Albert Einstein and Woody Allen and Fran Lebowitz and Sarah Silverman and Joan Rivers and Sammy Davis Jr., all the Jew geniuses. And those Jew haters running the early film scene knew that my peeps were going to blow them out of the water. So they tried to keep us out. Well, having faced the same situation for 6,000 years, we knew what to do, which was move somewhere with a really weak-minded population and take over. 
So we went to L.A. and we created our own damn movie business in California. And there was plenty of cheap land and bright light and people too stupid to be anti-Semitic. And most importantly, Mexicans to do all the actual work. Now, we all know that it's a universally agreed upon truth and a well-documented reality of a proven fact of absolute certainty that Jews do control the media. Right? We all know that. It's okay. That's why the good stuff is so good. I mean, think of the names Spielberg and Weiner and Seinfeld and Streisand and Allen and Goldie Hawn and Madonna. You can't make art without suffering. Believe me, I know. I've had to endure things like painful mustache waxing and sore glutes after boot camp and having to go on HSN to sell useless, stupid kitchen tools. I know you can't have art without suffering. Not to mention coming to terms with the fact that I can never, ever be actual friends with Laura Ingalls. And that's pain, my friends, real pain. And that's where my art comes from. And my people have suffered plenty in our 6,000-year history. But we've kept our sense of humor about it. Now, how do you think we survived those 40 sweaty years crossing the desert without things like avian water and someone blotting our faces? There's humor in forced labor. You just have to know where to look. And once we escaped Egypt and the Inquisition and the Tsars and the pogroms of Russia and Nazi Germany, we came here to the land of opportunity and we created Hollywood. I mean, where better for a bunch of short, dark-haired cynics with big noses than the land of sun and fun and blonde shiksas and outdoor activities where final solutions are things like the perfect nose job or circumcising your name or getting alimony for life or a Mercedes S-Class coupe? And there in the City of Angels, we created the myth of America and Christmas and the suburbs and just about everything else that we equate with 20, 20th century America. It's all a fabrication. It's all dreamed up by people who were forced from their homelands and then not allowed entry into that golden, shiny club. And as a famous Jew once said, if they won't let you into the club, buy the club. Actually, nobody actually said that. I think I said that. But... By I, I mean Chris, who actually wrote that line for me. But I paid him for it, so it's, it's mine. I own it, and that's the point. And anyway, why would you want to be a member of a club that wouldn't have you as a member? So we can all agree, I think, that Jews not only control the media, but also created it. We agree? Okay, let's move on. And by the way, the obese film history teacher? Jew. Okay, so let's say from 1900 until, like, 1990... My people were in charge. We were running the show, you know, along with the gays, of course, and many of them are Jewish, too, much to their mother's dismay. But actually, those mothers were secretly thrilled for the built-in stylist in the family. And of course, hand in hand with controlling the media was corporate America, who funded the whole thing and forced their agenda through TV and movies and along with the government, who also wanted to get their agenda in there, too. Why do you think there were so many movies about World War II during World War II? Right? We all know. We can see right through it, and we accept it. I mean, when Pebbles Flintstone asked Wilma for Welch's grape juice, it wasn't just a coincidence that they sold Welch's grape juice in Bedrock. Or when the only beer they drink on the league is Bud Light, do you think we're that stupid? We get it. We created and controlled the media, but the mega corporations pay the bills. We know. We all got that. Of course, the whole promise of cable was that there wouldn't be any ads because you'd pay for the cable TV. I'm actually still really angry about that betrayal 
that that broken promise. And that's why I'll actually never pay for TV. I'll never pay for cable because you promised me it would be ad free. Now, except for Netflix, which I will pay for, and sometimes Hulu Plus, and sometimes iTunes, but that's that's about it. But lately, it seems like the corporate monster is actually beating my tribe at our own game, because while we all know how obviously corporate America now controls the media, it seems like foodiness seems to be the like sticky nexus that's holding it all together and is actually swallowing the whole thing alive like some kind of cannibalistic media soylent green. The tangled matrix of foodiness, the multi-headed hydra that pulls you down the rabbit hole, is in charge now. The turnip growers of America or the Oatmeal Board or the United Lentil Coalition aren't sponsoring shows like The Biggest Loser or The Voice. The foodiness industry is. And it's working. They've got the whole equation all wrapped up in one extra-large, shrink-wrapped, single-serve, microwavable, chocolate-chip-flavored package with added omega-3s. You watch your TV, you see ads. They're all for foodiness. So like a mindless, brainwashed zombie, you buy the foodiness because you can't think for yourself anymore. You've got the internet to tell you what apps to buy, which tell you which shows to watch, which advertise blueberry-flavored fiber bars and organic Cheerios and Pepsi with added fiber, which you then like on Facebook and share with all your friends. And the next thing you know, you're believing Jamie Lee Curtis when she tells you to buy the yogurt that makes her poop. Being riveted by a 300-pound Kirstie Alley promoting the latest cheesecake-flavored zero-calorie weight loss program. And you read about a Notre Dame football player who had a fake girlfriend through a dating app whom he never met, who he says inspired him on her deathbed to become a famous football player and who apparently maybe never existed at all, but he still believes she did. And even if she did exist, they never even met or spoke on the phone. And now college football players can't even date rape their girlfriends anymore because he can't date rape an online profile. There, I said it. And foodiness, which controls the media, caused all of it. The complete lack of actual real food or nutrition in the manufactured doppelganger of food destroys your mind and body and makes you dumb. D-U-M. Dumb. Of course, it also makes you fat, makes you sick, puts you on pharmaceuticals, which makes you dependent now not just on the foodiness industry, but on the pharma crew, too. So you stare at your Facebook and you watch commercials and you watch Real Housewives and Dance Moms. You wind up unemployed and on Medicare, which pays for your mobility scooter. You scooter through the Taco Bell drive-thru, and eventually you buy your plus-size casket at Costco. That's how it works. God bless America. And so you become so beholden to foodiness through its control of the media and therefore your mind that eventually we'll all end up like the futuristic corpocracy scenario in Cloud Atlas, where we eat at Papa Song restaurants where cloned women are serving us burgers made from, spoiler alert right here, They're slaughtered and harvested, used-up sisters. I'm sorry for the spoiler alert, but I had to use it. And even though Charlton Heston thought it couldn't get any worse than Soylent Green, remember that at least Soylent Green was people. Technically, they were free-range, practically pasture-raised grazers. In Cloud Atlas, the cloned women who get turned into burgers are just like our feedlot cattle today. Genetically engineered, kept in tightly confined and controlled unnatural environments, and fed chemicals and cheap food. It turns out that Soylent Green was practically benign in comparison. I'm sorry again if you haven't read or seen Cloud Atlas yet, but it was so good I can't stop thinking about it. And you're all probably just a little bit sick of my Matrix analogies. And so Chris and I thought it was time to start stealing fresher ideas. The point here is... If we Jews still had control and hadn't lost it or just handed it over to foodiness, 
maybe this wouldn't be happening. But I'm working on it. Of course, that's the whole point of Let's Get Real, to seize back control of the entire media and change the message. Or just sell the show to Unilever and go buy my own private island, whichever comes first. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more about foodiness controlling the media. This is Dusk by Jerome LOL on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. For more information, visit Cane5.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real. The cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Weitz, your host. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. You can also find Let's Get Real on Facebook. I would love to hear from you all. And remember that Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit, member-supported radio station. So if you're not a member yet, what are you waiting for? Get on it. Okay, now you remember a long time ago I did a show on veganism vegetarian and veganism and the show was called garden burgers don't come from gardens and i told you the story i've told you this story before of how i once saw an episode of oprah where she and her staff went vegan for a week as an experiment and to help them out they had a like so-called vegan chef who took them shopping and loaded them up on vegan foodiness products like soy cheese and tofu hot dogs and veggie burgers and all kinds of hydra-headed foodiness products. I mean, they were doing a show on how to live a vegan lifestyle, which means basically how to eat things like vegetables and fruit and beans and rice and lentils, etc. Only one little thing. There were no carts full of vegetables and fruit and beans and rice and lentils. There was no real food in their carts, just vegan foodiness. Hundreds of dollars worth of it. And then these poor staffers went home and they tried to feed their families all that shit for a week. And everybody got angry and cried and had meltdowns, not because their real food had been replaced by vegan foodiness, but because their usual foodiness had been replaced by vegan foodiness. And it was awful and everybody hated it and everybody cried and got mad. But not once on the show did they say, hey, let's cook some real food. Let's make a salad or some black beans or maybe like some vegetable soup. And that's what got me so mad that I invented Let's Get Real. Like Colbert and his truthiness, Let's Get Real and foodiness were born in that moment. I realized that foodiness had become so insidiously interwoven with the media that there was no way out. Like when mainstream nutritionists, and I shudder at that word, go on the Today Show and tell you to eat more salmon and tuna and low-fat dairy? Never once mentioning that the salmon is farmed and borderline toxic and that tuna shouldn't be eaten at all and that low-fat dairy isn't the way to lower your cholesterol, but ditching the white flour and sugar and soda and foodiness and lean cuisine and processed foodiness products we all unquestioningly consume as food is? 
or trumpeting a study about the anti-cancer properties of blueberries and encouraging the eating of them without mentioning that they're one of the most heavily sprayed crops produced in the U.S. And you really should only be eating them when they're in season and they're local. Although I do buy frozen organic berries year-round. So you can do that. But the foodiness industry will get their dirty paws on that info, this new study about blueberries and cancer, and they'll get their dirty little hands into their... And they'll come up with blueberry-flavored, low-fat, whole-grain cereal bars with added omega-3s and calcium to try to get in on that blueberry wave. While producing a piece of shit product with 40 chemicals and additives and artificial ingredients made primarily out of white flour and sugar. Like the milk and cereal bars that don't have any real milk in them. Or the Special K Berries and Yogurt cereal that has artificial berry flavoring and yogurt powder. Uh... Yogurt is a living thing, and if you powder it, it's not yogurt anymore. It's like still calling it Charlie's Angels after Farrah Fawcett left. Not the same thing. It's like the media frenzy about the flu right now. There's a flu epidemic. It's like 1918 all over again. The vaccine is running out. Even I got caught up in that, and I went to my doctor, and I got a flu shot. Or telling us how bad the economy is so often and with such fear-mongering that we created a bad economy out of fear by not spending. The propaganda creates the reality. The Nazis knew this. The Soviets knew this. Kim Jong-il knew this. Tell someone something repetitively enough times over and over and they'll believe it. Like that Eric Oides is the John Stewart of food. Or that Eric Oides is the John Stewart of food. Or that foodiness will become a household word, because foodiness already is a household word. Foodiness is a household word in my household. And that's why you are so lucky to have found me and Let's Get Real. I'm your beacon of truth, your voice of reason. I don't fear monger. Not all the time. I'm more subversive. Let's Get Real is for the every person, but by every person, I mean all the right kind of persons. Let's Get Real isn't meant to work in the Alice Waters, rarefied, Brooklyn, Berkeley, Portland, real food, circle jerk world. It's meant to work within the system. Now, maybe not to the motorized scooter driving Taco Bell set. I think it's maybe a little too late for them, but it's not too late for you. You, the John Stewart watching crowd. It's not too late. You're already infected with the foodiness virus, but it's still curable. And I have the vaccine. The foodiness media vaccine. You need to get your shot, and we do accept Obamacare for this. So speaking of Jews taking the media back, I, I mean, sorry, Jews working within the system. Yesterday, I appeared on the Dr. Oz show. Mm-hmm. This is as within the system as it gets. And I don't think he's having Alice Waters on anytime soon to tell 4 million viewers who generally live on Pizza Hut and Doritos and Diet Coke what kind of soil to plant their heirloom turnips in that they grew in the backyard of their $2 million houses in Berkeley. I was asked to come on the show and be on a panel of insiders talking about the dirty secrets of fast food. Now, doing a show on the dirty secrets of fast food is like doing a show on the dirty secrets of porn or the dirty secrets of the Bush administration or the dirty secrets of Facebook algorithms. The whole thing is a dirty secret. So let's start there. Now, if you don't think that fast food doesn't have any dirty secrets to hide, then it's too late for you. You're too far down the rabbit hole, and you need to be turned into a Cloud Atlas serving clone now. In my world, 
We all just assume that fast food is the worst shit you can eat, and we avoid it like poison, which it basically is. But there's a huge, massive segment of the population who, who eat it regularly, like many times a week. And apparently, they haven't gotten the message, or they just don't care about what they eat. Or they're just a bunch of mindless, post-industrial, first-world, pre-apocalyptic, 500-pound Republican voting shit for brain fall of the American empire potato people who basically are the food supply for foodiness. Take your pick. Now, you may have noticed that I rarely even address fast food on this show because I don't really consider it to be food or foodiness. It's kind of in a whole other category. It's not food, and I don't talk about it because unlike with the Jews, there's no solution there. The best advice I can give is a line I use on my reel, which is that if you have to eat fast food, at least order the salad because plastic tomatoes are better than fast foodiness burgers. Now, the producer, who was a very nice young Jewish girl who perhaps your son would like to meet, who incidentally knew the deep throat reference that I made in our first conversation, which scored points with me, which said a lot about her, sent me the questions I would be asked and their commentary on it in advance. Yes, this is how it works. You know the questions in advance. Now, nevertheless, within the questions themselves, you could see how deeply the foodiness control of the media already existed. Foodiness is so pervasive that the premise of the show wasn't don't eat fast food, it's not food, which would, of course, be my take. It was, of course, fast food is food. Of course, you're going to eat it. And here's how to make better choices. That's what the foodiness industry does. It gives you the illusion of choice. So you feel empowered to make better choices, like choosing the turkey bacon egg white sandwich or the fat-free light yogurt and the whole grain goldfish. Whenever I'm asked questions like that, what the person asking me usually expects me to say would be things like, choose the grilled chicken sandwich over the double cheeseburger or buy the salad instead of the fries or get the low-fat yogurt instead of the 50-ounce Coke. Look at the better choices menu. Vitamin water is always a good choice. But to me, it's not about those choices because the premise in those questions is that fast food is food. That's foodiness controlling the media right there. So I have to change the conversation to, this isn't food. Trying to do that is like trying to tell a 23-year-old that they don't have a 1,000 friends because it's impossible. Because they'll show you that their Facebook page says they have a 1,000 friends. The point is that we are so far down the rabbit hole with foodiness and the propaganda that foodiness is food that for me to work within the system, I have to start off there and change the premise of the questions. Now, the people on the show, let me just say, were lovely, wonderful people, super nice, and super interested in what I had to say about foodiness, and we planned the questions I'd be answering, and I came up with some really good jokes about things like propylene glycol being the Botox of foodiness, and fake grill marks being the tattooed eyebrows of foodiness, and all the other really super important talking points that were really just my jokes in disguise. Unfortunately, most of that got cut out, which I find kind of shocking. Now, we were all set with what I was going to say, and they said that the car would be picking me up at 7.15 a.m. and I should be ready to go, which, of course, sent me into an instant tailspin of envirorexia, where I pondered whether I should just take the subway and reduce my carbon footprint, but risk getting stuck or massively delayed or perhaps stabbed or live it up and sit in traffic in a town car for 40 minutes, but still be able to tweet and text the whole time and ask the driver to change the radio station to NPR. 
Now, it was also raining and sleeting, and I would have gotten pretty wet if I had taken the subway. It seemed ridiculously wasteful for me to take the car by myself, and we're not exactly talking a Prius here, but, you know, a town car. And sit and idle in traffic and take twice as long as if I had just walked the five minutes to DeKalb Avenue and gotten on the B train and been there in 15 minutes using my unlimited Metro card, which was already paid for. I'm not telling you which one I chose, but let's just say my feet stayed dry. So I wanted to be totally respectful and polite and make sure that they loved me on the show and would want me back. But I also wanted to be myself and get the foodiness message across. So Chris and I took the questions and we put them through the Foodiness Master 3000 machine that we invented while we were hiding out in the Foodiness Fallout Shelter on December 21st and the Wi-Fi went down. And so the questions that otherwise would have been predictable and boring got the Foodiness Makeover Treatment. And even better, as soon as I said Foodiness to Dr. Oz, he laughed and said, Foodiness, like truthiness. And he got it and the audience got it. And they even laughed a few times which was totally the goal because it was the mainstream audience beta test and it passed. Questions like, is it true that those grill marks on your chicken may not be made on a grill in the restaurant? I answered using my seemingly spontaneous quip to think of those grill marks as the tattooed eyebrows of food. They're merely cosmetic. They're not real. And you're not fooling anyone with them. Grilled chicken at a fast food place is a foodiness illusion. Mass-produced, manufactured, not real food. I was going to say that the fake grill marks were the tramp stamp of food, but I didn't want to offend anyone in the audience. Tattooed eyebrows to me are much more benign, tramps notwithstanding. So the town car picked me up. I mean, really, isn't that what you figured I would choose? And I got to 30 Rock, and I was hoping and praying that I would see Liz Lemon and we could hang out, but I couldn't find her. And I met my fellow panelists, and I met the nice young Jewish producer who looked about 25. And if you want her number for your son, I can get it for you. And when we rehearsed, she kept trying to kind of tone down my foodiness and to get me to say things in a more neutral way. And all I'm thinking is, how am I going to get my Botox joke in there? Uh, I mean, how can I help Dr. Oz's viewers eat more food and less foodiness? But it all turned out fine. She was visibly relieved when the segment was over. And even though I kind of took over the segment and made it about foodiness, they all seemed really happy. And they put my Foodiness 101 article on the website this week. And I hope they'll ask me back or that maybe Oprah was watching and will want me to save her network with Let's Get Real, the TV show. And if so, I'll totally retract everything I said about that foodiness vegan show that she did. And I finished up feeling like maybe a teeny tiny little fraction of the foodiness control of the media had been broken by a teeny tiny little loudmouth Jewish girl. And maybe I had reclaimed part of our share of the control that we've lost. Our proud media controlling Jewish heritage wasn't totally destroyed. And then I wiped off the lipstick. I got my stuff from the dressing room. I said my thank yous and my goodbyes because my mother trained me right. I took one last good look around for Liz Lemon. I couldn't find her, so I got in the elevator. I went down to the street, and I got into the other waiting town car that took me the 20 short blocks to work. Because the point is that, at the end of the day, a future media star and poor working Jewish girl isn't going to say no to a free town car. The other point is that Jews need to seize back control of the media again because foodiness does not know or care what's good for you. Jews know what's good for you. We know what's good for you. Believe me, no Jew would want foodiness to dominate our diet because it makes everyone obese and dumb. 
which means they won't be interested in our funny things and our smart things like curb your enthusiasm or want to read Joan Rivers' latest book or think Sarah Silverman is brilliant or go see Fran Lebowitz talk about the scourge of tourists in New York or own a copy of Annie Hall on DVD and practically have it memorized. Or, you know, you get the point. A world of obese, dumb people is not a world that's good for the Jews because it isn't good for Jewish entertainment. And it isn't good for Let's Get Real. So come back to trusting my people to run your media and control the propaganda. We'll make you thin and smart again. And watch my clip on DrOz.com and read my Foodiness 101 I wrote for their website. And tune in next week when I do the first of my two-part series on class in America and foodiness. And make sure to keep tuning in to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding and preparing and eating food, because if you don't want to eat shit, it would be the right thing for you to do. We're out of time. Thanks to Jack for coming in and recording this today, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.